the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Amen. Um, good morning. Um, it is, it's, it's lovely to, to be with you this morning and thank you so much to Colin and to the guys for leading us so well um, so far. I don't know what your first thoughts are um, after reading that passage. I, on the way in through the door and, and as I was coming down the church I was, I was met by a few different people um, who had a few different questions and one of them just turned to me and went, I've read this morning's passage, good luck. Um, <coughs> But today we're, we're coming to the end of a section um, in Luke's Gospel. We've been looking at it over the last few weeks, where a group of, of religious leaders are trying to trap uh, Jesus with, in various ways with questions. We've had the religious leaders. Um, they've tried the direct approach. They've challenged Jesus' authority. That doesn't work. Then they send in some spies. They make out that they have this genuine question about taxes, but Jesus sees through that one as well. Now the Sadducees come with their question, and it's a bit of a weird one. And we see Jesus answer their question, and then ask what seems like a totally unrelated question back to them. Now, I'll admit, I kind of struggled this week to figure out what's going on here. What's the big picture here? But I actually think, at the core, it's actually really simple. It's all about where our focus is. Are we focused on the things of earth? Or are we focused on the things above? And hopefully you'll see that as we we go along. To understand the Sadducees' question, the, the question they come to Jesus with, you need to know a little bit about them. All Jews held that the the Pentateuch, which is the the first five books of the Bible, the first five books um, from Genesis to to Deuteronomy, they said those were the centre of their scripture. That's where their whole religion flowed out of. And everything that came after uh, the prophets and then what they called the writings were secondary. But the Sadducees took this a step further. They They held those first five books in such high regard that many have said they didn't really accept the rest of what we call the Old Testament as scripture at all. Now the Sadducees, they could find no reference to resurrection in those first five books. So unlike the rest of the religious leaders who had some sense of an idea of this this thing, resurrection, they didn't go for it at all. They didn't hold to it. And over the years, this developed uh, to the point where at the time of Jesus... The Sadducees didn't really accept anything supernatural, including belief in angels, spirits. Um, Paul tells us that in Acts 23, verse 8. So they've become earth-focused. They really only accepted what they could see in front of their faces. They were a pretty well-off group. 
They were from the highest sections of society. And because they didn't believe in an afterlife or rewards or punishments beyond the grave, their focus had become totally about serving themselves here and now. So that's a bit of info about the Sadducees. They come to Jesus with this really random question. It's clearly a question they, they liked using. They clearly loved to use this against the Pharisees who believed in a resurrection uh, and others. Because it seems that no one's been able to give them a good answer. That's why they've come now. Jesus has been able to answer everybody's questions. Let's get him with that question we have that, that, that tricks everybody. Let's go and get him. So they go to Jesus with this question, thinking this one will tie him up. Show the stuff he's been saying about people rising from the dead is a load of rubbish. Or at least they'll see that he can't answer everything. And I've said this, this question's a weird one for us. But it was actually a weird question then as well. They're asking about a practice which was known as, as Leverite marriage. We came across it when we were going through Deuteronomy. Um, essentially, if a man was married and died without having any children, his brother could marry the woman and their first son would be the son of the dead brother and carry on the dead brother's name and family line. It was a way of stopping family lines in Israel from dying out. Now, the reason this was a weird question back then was that this law wasn't really used ever. There's only a few examples of it. And by the time of Jesus, the practice of it had long since died out. So the Sadducees aren't coming to Jesus with a question that matters. They're not coming to Jesus with a genuine question. This topic is totally academic. They don't care about the answer. Because they fully believed that the law rejected the whole idea of a resurrection. All they cared about was having a question that makes them look right and everyone else look foolish. A question that allows them to forget that their actions might have some sort of eternal consequence and allow them to keep enjoying the comfortable, cushy, worldly focused life they had come to enjoy. Lots of people reject Christ because they have these, these big questions. Questions about evil and suffering. Questions about how Jesus could be the only way to get to God. Questions about the evidence for the Bible, for the resurrection. Questions about God and science. Are, th are those things even compatible? Now some people ask these questions genuinely. As part of, of, of the process of God bringing them to faith. They have a deep want to, and a desire to know more. That's, that's great. But a lot of people use these questions as a smokescreen. They don't really care about the answer. They use questions like these as an excuse. So they can intellectually write the whole thing off and continue to live whatever way they want. This is what the Sadducees are doing here. Now on this occasion, Jesus answers their question. You've maybe noticed... As we've gone through Luke's gospel and through the, the other gospels as well over the years, you've maybe noticed that Jesus doesn't always answer people's questions. Especially questions that aren't genuine. You'll have seen that even in the last few weeks. Jesus feels no need to answer questions. Why? 
Well, you see, what Jesus is often more concerned with is what's going on behind the question. What's going on in the heart of the person who asks that question? When we're confronted with these sorts of questions, we need to try and do the same. To think, well, what is this person really asking? What is this person, what's really going on behind this? What's going on in their heart? And we need to try and, and respond to that. But here we see that Jesus, Jesus gives an answer. He gives an answer because he wants to put right the Sadducees' poor grip of scripture and the whole idea of resurrection. It's probably not a bad thing, as there's going to be a lot of talk about resurrection in a few days' time. So Jesus shows them from scriptures that, that the resurrection is implied in scripture. He even uses this very familiar story of Moses and the burning bush. A story that comes from those first five books. A story that comes from the bit of the Bible they hold in really high regard and that they claim says nothing on this topic. In the example he gives, God says, and if you look back to the, the Exodus story, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As Jesus says, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. God can't be the God of something that doesn't exist. That makes no sense. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, although dead in the eyes of the world, somehow live. One of the, the realities that comes out of those words of God in Exodus is that our relationship with God is eternal. Death on earth doesn't in any way break our relationship with him. He is still our God and we will stand before him. And I wasn't necessarily sure about what I should say about the whole marriage issue that's talked about here. Because the question they're asking isn't genuine. And it's not really the focus of this passage. But I was asked two times today already, what are, are you going to talk about this? Because I want to know about this. So I'm going to say a little bit about it. Just as a way of note. Because the way Jesus answers this, this marriage question is a way that it grates with some of us. We're not sure we like what Jesus says here. That in the age to come we will neither marry nor be given in marriage. You might look at that and think, well, I, don't really, I don't really want that. I quite like my wife or my husband. Maybe they've been really annoying you this week and you're kind of like, good. <laughs> my wife didn't look up at that point. <laughs> but I think the reality of this, this, what Jesus is saying here, is that in eternity we will be made fully right with God. The work that began in us the day God called us into his kingdom will be finished. All the sin and the self-centeredness and the selfishness that goes along with it will be fully removed from us. And we will live in perfect union with our God and with each other. So actually there's no need for marriage anymore. Jesus is saying that eternity will be fundamentally different from how the life we live on earth. And we will be fundamentally different from how we are in this life. 
So we can't look at these things through earthly eyes necessarily. We will be eternal. We will have resurrection bodies. And we will be children of God, totally united and made perfect through him. Jesus is saying here, not that eternity is a step back where we'll be disappointed and sad that some of the realities of this world maybe don't carry through, but that it is so much more than what we currently get through marriage, through two people striving to grow together and be united. That work will be done. We will have a perfect relationship with the person who is currently our spouse and with everybody else. Marriage is simply a shadow of something even greater to come. And how that all works out, we don't know. Now you may not be happy with Jesus' answer to that question. The other religious leaders who did believe in resurrection of some sort, they loved it. Because although they were all trying to discredit and kill Jesus, they had just seen the Sadducees who was throwing this question around because they made them look smart and made everyone else look silly. They've just seen them be made to look really stupid. In fact, during this dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders that we've, we've been looking at over the past few weeks, Jesus has made them all look foolish in front of the people that they're trying to impress. And they are so worried about damaging their reputation any further that as verse 40 tells us, no one dared ask him any more questions. But Jesus doesn't let them off that easily. He's answered the question he was asked, but now he asks a question of his own. A question designed to get at what's going on in the hearts of those who have been asking these questions. You see, in, in ancient cultures, um, descendants were considered to be less than their ancestors. So David's relatives are lesser than David. Most Jews believe that the Messiah would be, would be a human descendant of David who would maybe come close to being as good as David was. But Jesus challenges this by saying, if the Messiah, if, if, if the Christ is David's inferior, is less than David, then how come David can call him Lord? And the simple point that Jesus is making here is that the Messiah is more than a man. More than just a human descendant of David. He's also the Lord. He is God made man. You see the religious leaders and the Sadducees in particular had become so focused on the world around them. On the day to day existence. They had lost all sense of the bigger picture. They had lost all sense of what God had for them as his people. The Sadducees were super religious. They were the temple priests. But they had become so focused on their religion, they completely missed what all their religious activity was meant to be about. They had absolutely no relationship with their God. In fact, as we've seen, they didn't even believe in any sort of spiritual realm. All that was real to them was what was in front of their faces. I wonder where your focus is today. 
Wonder has the madness and the busyness of this life got in the way of your relationship with God? Is spending time in the presence of God, building that relationship, a priority in your life? Or is it an added extra? I'll do it once I've, once I've sorted A, B and C. Once I've done this, once I've done that. And all too often it gets forgotten about. Or you give to God your leftovers rather than your first fruits. And you maybe find yourself slowly drifting away from God's presence. As your focus becomes more and more on the world around you. As it grabs hold of you again. And one day you maybe wake up and you realise your faith has become little more than a routine. The love you once had has faded. The focus on the things of heaven has dimmed. And like the Sadducees, you've become totally focused on the things of this world. Christoph has has said this a few times in the last while, and it's kind of really just stuck with me. We give our time to the things we love. We make time for the things we love, the things that are important to us. Are you making time for this relationship? And I'm not talking here about religious activity. You you maybe give several hours a week to church work. You're here every Sunday. You're a very moral person. You give plenty. You maybe read your Bible and pray. Sadducees did all those things. And they were totally missing the point. You can do lots of religious activity without knowing Jesus. Without being in that relationship with Jesus where he is Lord of your life. Here's the question. Do you love Jesus? Do you really love him? Like David, can you call him Lord of your life? And like David, can you be said to have a heart after God's own? This God who who loved us into existence. The God who loves us more than our human minds can probably even comprehend. So where's your focus? Where is your heart? Is it on the things of earth or the things of heaven? Do you love Jesus? We challenge for you. It's one word. Why? Why? Why do you love Jesus? Here's what I want you to do. I would like you to take a bit of time this afternoon or later on, sit down, and I want you to write down your answer to that question. I I did this during the week. Sort of came to me during the week, and I, I, I sat and I did this. I found it really encouraging found it really helpful to think it through and put it down on paper. found it a bit challenging too. Some of the reasons I wrote down were a bit selfish. Will you do that for me? Will you do that this afternoon? I think it's, it's, a, it's a good way to take stock of where we're at in this relationship. It's easy to say these things, but actually when you think it through, 
And if you struggle to answer that question, why do you love Jesus? Or, or you write down what you know is the right answer, but you're struggling to connect with it. You're, you're struggling to believe it. Or if you're not happy with, with what you're coming up with, will you speak to somebody about it? One of us. One of the elders. Mature Christian that you trust. I, uh, I, I trained as a teacher, so it was only a matter of time before I started giving out homework. Um, but I think it would be really helpful if you, if you did this. So we've seen the Sadducees. And their focus was totally worldly. We've seen Jesus once again point to the fact that although he is fully human, he is so much more. And he calls all of us to name him Lord and Saviour of our lives. And finally, he ends with a warning. A warning he gives to his disciples, but he makes sure that the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and all those religious leaders can hear every word that he's saying. And he warns his disciples of the consequence of losing their focus on him. The result is we become worldly focused and we can even more easily fall into the temptations all around us. This is what has happened to these religious leaders. Their long flowing robes displayed that they were above the normal people who had to wear practical clothes they could actually work in. They craved power and authority. They cared deeply about how they looked before people, but they weren't worried about how they looked before God. These guys um, didn't get paid, so it was encouraged that people give them gifts to support their teaching. And it seems that it has become common practice for them to encourage widows, one of the most vulnerable groups in their society, to give gifts that they couldn't really afford. Or they charged them large commissions for looking after their finances and their property. They were fleecing them to fill their own pockets. And they offered these prayers. Prayers. Prayers to impress other people. Not to build a relationship with God. Their focus was on the here and now. Power, wealth, and acclaim. It's interesting. The three things that Jesus is warning his disciples about here are the same things he was tempted by um, in the desert by Satan. These are the temptations we face all the time in this world. Power and control. Be Lord of your own life. Build your, own, build your little kingdom here. Rule over others. But Christ calls us not to rule over each other. To make life difficult for those around us. But to love and serve each other. Wealth, money, possessions, consumerism. Jesus challenged us about those last Sunday. Everything we have belongs 
to God, not us. So we should trust him and be generous and sacrificial with everything we have, not keep it in, but push it out. And acclaim. We all want to be known. We all want to be liked. We all want to be loved. But when we look to other people for our identity and our value, we will always end up in a bad place. Jesus has told us in this passage that we are children of God. We are loved and valued beyond measure. And our identity is in Christ. Jesus gives us a warning here. If you focus on the things of this world, you're going to become like this world. This is uh, what has happened to the religious leaders. These guys who should have been in the best relationship with God. These guys who should have been leading the way for everyone else. They've taken their eyes off the things above. They've lost their focus. And they're going to have to face up to the consequences of their rejection of Christ. So where are your eyes focused today? Are you finding yourself caught up in the world and what it has to offer? Are you finding some of these temptations are things you really struggle with? Well, you're in the same boat as the rest of us. The question is, what are you going to do to focus your eyes on Christ and to keep your eyes on Christ? I think reminding yourself and, and thinking about why you love Jesus might be a good place to start. I want to finish with a, with a few verses. I think this sums up what we've been talking about quite well. It's, some of, it's one of my favourite passages in Scripture. You probably shouldn't have favourite passages in Scripture, but this is one I, I, I've clinged to before, and I just love what it says. It's the start of Hebrews chapter 12, and it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Where are your eyes focused today? Let's pray. Um, Lord, we, we come before you today, Lord, and we are just so thankful. Lord, we are thankful that we can call ourselves children of God. Lord, we thank you that you love us. Lord, we thank you that you came to earth, um, that you made yourself a man to bring us back into relationship with you. Lord, we just thank you for all that you have done for us. 
We thank you, Lord, for who you are and for what um, being in relationship with you means. Lord, we, we're sorry for the times when we have lost our focus on you, when we have let the things of this world consume us, when we have let the things of this world entangle us. Lord, we just pray that through your Holy Spirit you will help us, Lord, just to fix our eyes on you, to focus on the things above, not the things of this earth. And Lord, that we will run this race the race you have marked out for us with perseverance. Amen.